Hi there, and welcome. You're listening to a recording of Talking in the Time of Refuge, a conversation held at Arts House on the lands of the Wurundjeri Woi Wurrung peoples of the Eastern Kulin Nation on Saturday, the 19th of March, 2022. Refuge has been one of Arts House's most significant undertakings, a multi-year project bringing together a range of people to explore how collaboration with community is critical for how we prepare for climate emergency. In this conversation, you'll hear from elders, artists, emergency services and researchers as they think through insights gathered over the last six years' work. Hello, welcome to this very nice, cool space. Um, my name's Emily Sexton. Welcome to Arts House. Um, I'm the Artistic Director here and it's really lovely to have you all here on a Saturday afternoon. Um, I'd like to acknowledge that we are here on Wurundjeri country. Uncle, Uncle Ringo Terek was going to join us for a welcome. Unfortunately, he's been um, engaged in a bit of sorry business over the last couple of days, so he isn't here. Um, but I did want to acknowledge the leadership of the Wurundjeri people. Um, and the Bunurung people, who are their close neighbours, and offer my deep respect to um, their elders um, and to all uh, Aboriginal people, to First Nations people and to Torres Strait Islander people that are here, but have also been part of this project, Refuge, for the last six years. Um, and offer, I guess, my sincere thanks, gratitude, <laughs> respect, um, uh, yeah, it's hard to put into words the leadership that we are so grateful for um, that has guided this project. Um, I also wanted to say that I was at 5.45am this morning down by the river um, with Patricia Piccinini's Sky Whales. Um, it was a very moving and beautiful um, reminder of um, the potency of gathering and um, what it means to gather on country that has been so generously looked after um, by generation upon generation of First Nations people here um, and the privilege it is to do that. Um, so thank you all for, for sharing your Saturday afternoon with us. Um, we have a very um, esteemed lineup of people to share with you um, their thoughts about the last six years worth of work um, that this, well, many people in this space but many, many other people who aren't here today have contributed to the intersection of art, emergency and climate change. Um, it is uh, an abiding question what the role of creativity in the arts is um, as we face escalating and recurrent emergencies. And I think whilst today is a largely a, a, a sort of reflective piece, um, many of the people who are here are, uh, will be encouraging us to think about what is all of our role as we um, move forward through these, um, through the process of both recovery and preparation or, and response all at the same time. Um, we, and we do that as a community more and more with, with a greater amount of speed. So we had the privilege yesterday of bringing together um, many of the key players that uh, have been involved in the project. Um, it was a joyous day and um, uh, yeah, and I'm, I'm delighted to be able to, I guess, share those learnings um, with all of you. And I hope that it, um, I hope that it shifts your own thinking and your own practice. One of the key things that we've thought about over the last couple of days is, um, is what it means to collectively own and, and collectively 
be responsible for a great body of work um, and how that can then become embedded in your choices on a day-to-day -day level. Um, so I hope that that's what you get out of this afternoon. Um, the first person I'd like to introduce is Professor Jodie McVernon, who we were very fortunate to work with in 2018 when we were looking at pandemics. Jodie's had a really epic couple of years <laughs> um, with um, working for the Doherty Institute, leading um, a body of work and, and advising the federal government on our response. And um, I don't say this with any arrogance, but I do think we can be proud of what we have done in Australia. We have saved a lot of lives. And I want to express all of our gratitude to you, Jodie, because your leadership and your guidance and your knowledge, alongside many other scientists, has done that. Um, so, yes, welcome, Jodie. Um, she's going to introduce the, the, this afternoon. And, um, and yeah, she, keen to hear your thoughts. <laughs> going to sit but now I think I'll stand. So thank you for that generous welcome and for inviting me back here today. Um, it's, as you say, been an extraordinary couple of years and in thinking about, and what I was asked to think about was the role of the arts in pandemics and in response and preparedness, you know, I think we've all got our own personal reflections on what that's meant to us and a whole other layer of reality on where we were thinking back in 2018 and so much of that came to pass and so much more. So I think... Um, you know, where I'm going to go with this is I think on a very personal level, uh, the arts are so important for us in sense making in these kinds of events. They're also so important in being able to engage and communicate uh, and, and, you know, help the public to understand what's going on in terms of key messages. But also, you know, in where do we go next? We're at this junction now of being in a further time of uncertainty and adaptation. How do, do artists and others help us to imagine uncertain futures? So, so back to the first one of, you know, how, how does this help us to make sense? And I think through 2020 and even into 2021, there was this kind of increasing disconnect between Australia and much of the rest of the world. You know, back in early 2020, we were watching horrendous scenes in China and New York um, and Italy and thinking, how could this be us? What would we do? Um, we managed to avoid so much of that catastrophe, but you know, still then experienced other traumas and as a community we've gone through different collective traumas and around different states and territories around Australia. We've had completely different cohort experiences. And one of the, the books that I found really helpful was a tiny little collection of essays by Zadie Smith called Intimations. And it was written in 2020 and it was based on her experience of living through those early months in New York. And while so much of that experience was different, there was so much that was the same. And my favourite story in it was called Something to Do. And, you know, as a writer, people would ask her why she wrote and she would say, because it's something to do. And in pandemic, suddenly we were all given this load of unstructured time and had to find something to do. And it was this whole reflection on the way we had lived our lives and structured it into boxes and time and tasks. And when we were given free time, we had to somehow do it again. But was that actually the right way? And I think, you know, that, that whole experience has been um, a really reflective one for all of us in what were the drivers of our lives and do we want those to be the same going forward? So I think it's a real opportunity. But to find that shared experience was validating and really helpful. And I think that's, that's a really important thing that the arts can do. The second one was something that I really learned through working with Arts House, and that was the, the superpower that, that artists have, which is that you are allowed to go out and engage emotion. 
which as scientists we're not allowed to do. So, you know, that ability to go out, to, to speak to a crowd, to, to warm them up, to get them in, and then have them poised to receive a message. And the thing that so impressed me with all the artists that we worked with was how, how closely we worked together and how absolutely dedicated they were to making sure the message was right. And we were talking about the, you know, the, the game we had about you know, pandemics and people knowing about the reproduction number and they were primed when the pandemic came along. Um, but you know, there is this amazing capacity to be able to educate and teach and you know, the Victorian Art Council's immunisation ads were far and above, above anything the government ever did. Um, but you know, that, that partnership is incredibly powerful and that there is then a real capacity to, to help people to engage with and understand the things they need to be able to, to manage these events. And then I think the other really great experience I, I had personally was, um, was being at a, a Melbourne Writers' Festival panel on uncertain futures and, you know, with artists writing about science fiction and different things. And I was like, why am I here? You know, I do these really dry sort of scientific scenario predictions. And, and you know, we do. We try to work with governments. We've been working with health and treasury to say what happens next and how many cases and workplace absenteeism and all these things. But it's nothing about what that experience is like for people. And, um, you know, we are... We've come through two years of up and down and, you know, here's the answer and no, it's not. And we're moving into a future where we see there is going to be more uncertainty and there is going to be more adaptation and we can't imagine that things will go back to normal. You know, it, we, we as humans hate uncertainty and we want to see something that we can recognise. So it must be the past, but it isn't. It's going to be a different future. And so I think, um, you know, helping to engage the imagination, helping to create future visions for people where they see hope and they see their prospects for resilience and they see their capacity to cope and to manage and to draw on what they've done. I think that's so important and it, it helps to squash this current denialism that has everybody wanting to run back to the way it was. Well, not everybody, but some people. Um, but, you know, how, how do we help to guide people into that and to actually anticipate what it might look like for them and how they can, how they can cope with that? So, so yes, so I'm, I'm sold on the idea if you hadn't worked that out already. But I think, you know, from, from so many perspectives, this is a really critical role to play. And we've been talking a lot about community and how community was really the answer to Australia's response to COVID. That if there hadn't been the people out, you know, feeding and keeping people safe and supporting communities and, and international students and so many other people that, you know, we would not have had compliance with the orders if people didn't understand the messaging about why to be vaccinated or to do other things. Yeah, we simply wouldn't be where we are. And we, we are in these shifting times, but those messages are still really relevant. So um, I think these principles of community engagement, grassroots participation and, and getting those messages across with all of our tools uh, yeah, is, is really important and continues to be moving forward. So thank you for having me. Thank you so much. Oops, sorry. <laughs> Thank you so much, Jody. Um, it's now my pleasure to introduce Dr. Jen Ray, um, who has been an artist involved in our work with Refuge for six years. Um, and the thing that's remarkable about that's been consistently remarkable about Jen's work is that she has always matched um, an absolute dedication to research, like you say. Jody and, and a real knowledge with this generosity of invitation. And those two things have come together in, in really um, wild and different expressions, but they have been consistently um, uh, thoughtful and also um, really inviting to a really broad range of people. So thank you, Jen, for six years worth of work. Um, and please come and tell us what you think.
Thanks, Emily. That's that's a really lovely thing to say. Um, and and, and I'm, all, I'm emotional today, and so bear with me. Um, Tanshi, hello. I also would like to pay my respects to the traditional custodians of these stolen lands and their elders and their ancestors, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and extend this respect to any Aboriginal First Nations people here today, as well as their elders and ancestors. Specifically for their care for land and the skies, the waters, and non-human species. And I also want to further acknowledge that prior to colonization, the first peoples of, of the world, of, of these lands and of the world, had food and land sovereignty. You have arrived in the House of Art at Arts House in a time of refuge, so welcome. In the little box that's being passed around is a gift. It's, it's one of two offerings that I have for you today. To those of you who don't know me, my name is Jen Ray. I'm an artist and researcher of Canadian Métis descent from Treaty 6 territory on Turtle Island, otherwise known as Canada. The Métis people are, are one of three recognized Aboriginal people in Canada, representing 1.4% of the population. The Northwest is our mother. The land, the skies, the waters, along with the plants and the animals. And these lands are between the provinces of Alberta, Saskatchewan, Manitoba, and Michif is our language. And as Emily said, I'm also a core artist of refuge, where since 2016, I've created multi-platform creative experiments with um, collaborators and willing community members. Um, exploring the intersections and tensions between food security, survival skills, and social cohesion in times of disaster. And I'm drawing from conventional as well as empirical research, as well as cultural knowledge sharing. From the Fair Share Fair austerity cooking demonstrations and the Future Proof Survival Guide in 2016 and 2017, to the apotherapy quarantine in 2018, food justice in the climate emergency context continues to guide my work inside and outside of refuge. Food is what brings us together in the good times and has the potential to tear us apart in times of crisis. The right to food is a human right. It protects the rights of all human beings to live in dignity, free from hunger, food insecurity, and malnutrition. It's not about charity, but ensuring that all people have the capacity to feed themselves with dignity. Australia needs a rights-based approach to food security more than ever in the climate emergency context. In the box in front of you, is a morsel of chocolate-covered kangaroo pemmican for you to eat. Pemmican is one of our traditional foods and historically a staple in many North American diets. The name itself, pemmican, pemmy, it means fat or grease. Essentially, it's the quintessential survival food. It's nutrient-dense. It's traditionally made with dried meat, such as bison, caribou, moose meat, and in some areas, fish. It's mixed with rendered fat, whatever sort of seasonal berries that are available, and sometimes sweetened with honey or maple syrup. Once prepared, it can have a shelf life of decades. And I've, I've heard 10, 20, and I do know of um, edible pemmican after 100 years. So it was traded. It was used as uh, sustenance for long-distance travel because it was lightweight. 
Um, it was used to survive food shortages to ensure, or during austere conditions, and it was used for ceremony. I prepared pemmican for you today as an offering of welcome and energy. This pemmican is made from kangaroo, grass-fed beef tallow from jo uh, Jonai Farms, calendula flowers from my garden, plums from the orchard keepers in, in Harcourt, local ca um, Castlemaine raspberries and figs and macadamia, chocolate and sea salt. All of the little boxes were made from refuge pamphlets and catalogs um, in my studio on Jara Country. Um, with the help of my six-year-old daughter, who was five months old when Refuge started. Some of you have been on a long journey with us in the six-year arc of Refuge, and some of you might have arrived for the first time today. You might be coming here carrying a heavy load, holding some hard feelings about the climate emergency or your experiences over the past few years. Or perhaps you might be coming here feeling afresh. Please accept this offering as sustenance to ground you in today's discussions to support you to be comfortable with the uncomfortable, to be able to see what you need to see, hear what you need to hear, say what you need to say, and feel what you need to feel. As you eat the pemmican, my second offering is the do it together instructions on how to make it, just in case. A morsel this size is approximately 250 calories, and it's between 10 to 12 grams of protein. It's the type of food that will nourish your body as well as your mind in the years ahead. To make pemmican, you start by taking a lean meat, such as kangaroo, beef, venison, rabbit, or fish. I've never tried fish. Um, you slice it very, very thin, and how you go about this, how I do it, is I put it in the freezer and I take it out and I slice it with a very sharp knife, very thin, and I put it in the dehydrator. You can use an, an oven or you can do traditional methods outside, which you can Google if the internet's not cut off. Um, you fall, you, your next step is to take that meat and you pulverize it. And you can do that in a, a food processor or by hand. And you make a fine powder. And then you mix that dried powder with a one-to-one -one ratio of tallow or fat. Um, I've also tried coconut oil, but I don't know how long the shelf life is on that. But um, it has a different flavor. Um, you add in crushed nuts, dried fruit, nutrient-dense weeds like um, calendula, nettle, or my personal favorite, dandelion. You can prepare pemmican at any time to have on hand for long travels, hiking, healing, and sharing. I'm going to leave you with the fair share fair protocols around understanding food. Food is labor, food is knowledge, food is technology, food is energy, food is medicine. And food should be a human right. We will only have food security when we have indigenous food and land sovereignty at the heart. Marcy, merci, thank you. Thank you so much, Jen. Absolutely beautiful. Um, next up, we've got a, a conversation. Um, and uh, Lorna will tell you um, that conversation is absolutely at the heart of this project and it has been our guiding wisdom, I guess, um, since its inception. Um, the four people um, that are talking have been um, instrumental in our understanding of emergency and understanding of ourselves um, through, um, I guess, a, a growth um, over the six years of what um, our role might be, how we might enact it, and what kind of powers we can assume in that, um, in that question or that challenge. 
Um, I'd first like to introduce David Pledger, who has um, worked tirelessly over, through the pandemic over Zoom to bring together a very unruly mob of people with absolutely eclectic minds um, going in different directions, and has, as a, through that, produced an exceptionally beautiful publication to commemorate and to explore and to challenge us um, on uh, what our work has been. And he did that in partnership with Nikos, um, who's over there, and did an equally um, exceptional job at a kind of wrangling those brains together. Um, we are also um, working with Steve Cameron, who um, leads community and volunteers for Emergency Management Victoria. Um, and has once again, um, throughout the pandemic, there were so many times where Steve and Faye's voices just like sat there in my mind um, as little ghosts, even when we didn't see you because you were so super busy. But um, yeah, you're, I, there's so many wisdoms that you shared with us that resonated for me personally. Um, Faye Bendrups is from the SES, particularly the Footscray Division, uh, my local, um, and has and brings a performance practice. And those the intersections that reside in Faye have um, been such a wonderful expression of um, the different tools we can bring to a problem and how profound that can be. And finally, Latai Tamapiao, who is. Um, one of Australia's most treasured artists and um, has produced some exceptional work um, through Refuge and beyond. Um, and we're very proud to work with all of our artists as part of Refuge. So please come up to the stage and um, yeah, let's get chatting. Hello. My team's playing today, our first game of the year. I'm a bit nervous, we're getting smashed, but uh, it's, it's completely on uh, silent, so. <laughs> um, well, uh, I, I, I need to take a bit of a breath because um, uh, we finished the publication in October of last year and um, uh, as is the uh, the way of uh, an independent artist and curator, one goes straight on to the next thing. Um, it's not always a good thing, um, but today has been a, it's a great opportunity for me to reflect on the process of reflection. And um, so I'd like to thank um, Sarah, um, who uh, really worked with me from Arts House on the on the publication project, um, and also Nikos. Uh, from Research Unit of Public Cultures, um, and, uh, and Emily and all the team here for uh, making today possible because it's actually a little bit, I'm not a big one on uh, punctuation marks like um, uh, full stops, but let's just say it's a, there's a dot, dot, dot that I can reference as I uh, uh, think of what life is uh, like after having done, um, been involved in this, which 
the, the reason why I'm holding it up is because it's only just arrived. Uh, and uh, it came from uh, Nikos, or has, uh, through his uh, large network, organised a publisher through um, the Amsterdam uh, University of the Arts. And um, they've done a really great job with it. So we're quite happy about it. And we can tell you a little bit about how you can get your hands on it later. Um, but all of the artists here have... Did I give you a copy? Mm -hmm. Yes, OK. It's, a, it's on the table. OK, so it's... Um, I'd also really like to acknowledge uh, uh, Jen Ray. Jen, it's uh, always a pleasure to listen to you. I had great conversations with you as I worked my way through, found my way, uh, discovered a way through uh, what it meant to be a witness to this incredible project. Um, and uh, our conversations were really rich, outside uh, refuge, but always really rich. Um, and I really, I respect so much how you uh, carry yourself as an artist and um, I really have found your uh, presentation very touching and I'm about to tear up too so I'm not going to go that, down that path because I actually have to um, have a conversation with three uh, very extraordinary people. I, I really met most of you um, over Zoom and so the three-dimensional kind of experience is something I'm getting used to. Uh, Ang Harrod and I, we went for many walks in the botanical, well, a few walks in botanical gardens. So we had a very uh, much more real-world experience. So um, it, it, like many, I'm still kind of uh, coming to terms with the difference between the, a two-dimensional screen world and an, uh, the world that... Uh, an embodied world that uh, and it means that we can sit together and talk together uh, and listen to each other's experiences. Doing this piece was a, an absolute pleasure. Um, I found it quite uh, challenging uh, because Refuge is a very, very unusual project. And the reason it's unusual in Australian circumstances is because, well, there's, there's a number of reasons. It's an inquiry. And so as an inquiry, it doesn't seek an outcome. It seeks to ask questions and to not necessarily find answers to those questions, but maybe to find a better set of questions. And that's often how I think of a really good curatorial and artistic practice. Uh, it really disrupts the ways in which artistic and cultural production is uh, undertaken in this country, in Australia. It's very much subscription-based. It's seasons. It's about, you know, bums on seats. It's very... That's what gets put to the forefront, and I think that's certainly been our experience of what's been privileged over the last couple of years in terms of our funding. It's all about um, uh, how you're going to get numbers and metrics are very important. This doesn't do that, this project. This project actually seeks to uh, think think its way through what it's like to be a human being in the middle of uh, an artistic practice, a dramaturgy, I call it, a process of working, which is considered and respectful and inclusive and which, which places people in multiple positions <laughs> simultaneously so that they can be uh, challenged and... Uh, discombobulated productively, uh, and so that new kinds of work and thinking get generated. And in that 
frame, I'd like to have ask each of um, uh, our uh, panelists um, one question, and then I'm going to open it up for a, a more uh, loose conversation. And very happy for people to join in as well. Um, so this, this uh, I'm going to start with Steve first. Actually, um, one of the things that uh, that Steve and I had a conversation in the middle of. I don't know, lockdown number 234, I don't know what it was. <laughs> uh, and it was when the coalition basically decided that, okay, um, arts and humanities, we don't really need them, we're going to double the, the fees coming in. And I was completely ropeable and uh, I was just, you know, I could not get my head around it. My oldest boy was just about to go into, wanted to do an arts degree at, um, at university, he just finished, come out of lockdown this year. So I was, you know, it was very quite personal to me. And so I talked, Steve and I talked about it, and one of the things that we, we discussed was, one of the things that really stayed with me, he said, oh, people don't understand, governments don't understand that the arts and humanities is not actually about producing artists. It's about producing a certain kind of person who is adaptive, responsive, who can be inclusive, who sees the world in a certain way, and they're the kind of people that I need to be with me in an emergency management situation. And it really collapsed all the many sectors into this one idea of what kind of uh, a place do we want to be and what kind of people we, do we want to be. And then it enabled us to drill down and talk about uh, people rather than emergencies. And one of the things, Steve, which uh, I'm love to hear talk a little bit about is actually we need to prepare people. We don't need to prepare for a, a, any kind of emergency. You completely dis, disarmed me when, you, when I was reading in something you wrote when you said, um, yet, let's not have a template. Let's not do a template. And I'm thinking, wow, wouldn't it be great to have a template so we know what to do? <laughs> and you, you said very, very clearly over and over, you said, don't have a template because it's not, not going to help be helpful. And then that's how we got to this whole idea of preparing people. So I'm kind of curious about how you got to that and how that, how that works with you in the context of refuge and in the work that you do in your own job. Templates. <laughs> it was actually coined here in the very first, or calling it after action review, that's a real emergency term. Um, the conversation that we had here after the very first refuge in this room, I remember you, Lorna, saying we should take this to every community, surely we can copy it, surely we can have a plan, maybe even a template, and that's where we stopped. Said, Please, no. It's great to have community examples, and it's great to learn about what we did and what we might do in the future, but it's based on who was here, the experience we had together, and the context that we were in at the time. So you can't replicate that, and you shouldn't, but you can learn from it. And therefore, the agencies in particular have talked about having a plan. And the plan will only work in the context that you wrote it or thought it through, because it's going to be different during the situation you're in. So you have to adapt. Mm. And you have to adapt to who you're with, what you're doing, the context that you find yourself, and the strengths that you have with you and whoever's there and the resources that you may have at the time. But you can't possibly think that through when you're sitting in a calm space writing a plan. 
because you just don't understand the context and the situation you might be in. So templates are just efficient and government are great at copying each other and stealing from each other and producing plans and documents, but they've got a purpose, but it stays back in the building somewhere. So in a real-time situation where you find yourself that you have to do something maybe to survive, you'll draw on everything you have there and then. And it's important to learn to just understand that, adapt with it and continue to learn and improve and go through that process and cycle of learning, adapting, changing as you change with the context. And it may even need transformational change. And that can be at an individual level, a community level, and even a societal level. And that's where we need to get to. That's the process, that's the thinking. So we actually have to change the way we think, the way we make decisions, and how we act and continue to improve on that. And that can be at a small individual level, can be with our families, can be in this room, can be with our broader community, and maybe even broader society and overseas. But it's so important, and that will get us so much further than just having one plan and one template. I think one of the... Um, so what's the role of listening in that? Oh, it's so important. It's, it's learning. It's all about learning. We, the emergency services in particular are still adopting a model of education, knowledge and skills and all of a sudden that will lead to behaviour change, which we know won't work. But we can't seem to break this cycle of thinking if we educate people or we teach people. Mm. It's not about education and teaching. It's about learning. Mm. And it's about learning from each other. So the agency's learning from community community learning from agencies and other organisations as well. It's a two-way conversation, if you like, there. But then it becomes a learning process for everybody involved. And then working on the strengths of who you've got with you then and understanding your strengths, needs and priorities from there. And then introducing other actors and other people and other resources. And they may be the things that you could draw from there, but you have to be open. And there has to be opportunities created. It's sort of a community leadership, if you like. And then an invitation for others to be part of the community to learn more. Mm. That's not about teaching. It's something else. Mm. Okay. Mm. I think... Um, so... So we need to sort of work this from the ground up, don't we? It's not something that, uh, you know, that needs to be in inside schools in education I know you've done some work and uh, working with uh, young 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 people and uh, I'm very curious because it, it reminds me of um, Faye, your story when you're in Peru and I want to get to that in a second but I I want to frame that a little bit around your rather unique matrix around arts community and volunteering I mean it's it's um you know you've had a you know, substantial career as an artist. Uh, you um, head up state emergency services unit um, and you found your way uh, to Peru. And I think one of the things that's so interesting about what you bring to the project and the language that you bring and the way that you see or understand community is partly to do with having that international dimension. So. I'm, I'm curious about it because in Peru, you, you know, you were talking about community in a very specific way, which was largely to do with how 
society is configured in urban environments. Uh, can you talk a little bit about like, how that kind of um, how, how that works in uh, in Peru in terms of uh, from you know uh, when kids are in school and going all the way through to um, preparation for um, an emergency? Sure. In Peru, the approach to emergency response is a whole of community approach. We do talk about that a little bit here, but it's not what we actually do. So in Peru, the community sees itself as responsible for participating in and responding to emergencies. They have a formal structure, which is not too onerous, where four times a year they will run a whole of community emergency drill and an extra four times a year they'll run an additional four drills in schools. So the school children will get four, of, four different sort of school drills as well as the whole of society drills. Now, Peru is a country that has 400 earthquakes a year. They're very accustomed to emergencies and so everybody does have to help out. Um, the four drills that they do simulate particular disasters, a tsunami, earthquake of different magnitudes and so forth, and what will the consequences be and how long will it take to move to higher ground, etc., etc. And everyone evacuates and everyone does their role. Now, imagine the city of Lima, I think the population, the capital city is 11 million. Mm. So on any, at a given day, at a given time, this is when we're doing the emergency, the traffic in the street stops, it just stops dead. Okay, we're, there's the emergency happening now, we're all doing the drill. There's, there's exclusions for ambulance and a, and a few other things that, you know, need to keep operating. The, the effect is that there's a great sense of coming together. The tasks that people are required to do are really very simple. Unlike in Australia, which is fantastic and unique in the scale and extent of emergency response that we do have that's managed by volunteers... That's quite unique in the world. But in Peru, we, in SES, for example, and CFA, we have to go, undergo enormous amounts of training. We're constantly training. We do all sorts of additional skills. We deploy. But in Peru, it's like, no, there's some very simple things we can all do. It's not too hard. We can learn some basic first aid. We can all know how to look out for each other and our neighbours, our communities, who's working in the next office, whoever they might be. We know who's vulnerable and who we need to really pay more attention to. We know the exit out of the building and we know where to assemble once we get out of the building. Really, really simple things. Run by, you know, there's always a, a coordinator who's not governed by a statutory rule that says this is your responsibility and woe betide you if you get it wrong, but who will marshal the people and make sure all the heads are counted and get them outside and, okay, we're all here, in small groups. The communities that, that are um, practising this, this method are different communities. A community is de designated as, for example... This is a downtown CBD office block, that's a community. This is a school, that's a community. This is a residential block of flats, that's a community. This is a, a street with X number of, of properties, residences in it, that's a community. So the communities are broken up into very small parts as well. But they're where people are. They're not necessarily strictly geographical 
But again, you know, in, in other places we've talked about communities can be other places too. They can be online communities, they can be virtual communities. They can be communities of common interests. They can be communities of people with a special case that they are in a special place at a special time. So it's very, very manageable because if you've got 11 million people in one city and another you know, 10 or 12 million people in the rest of the country all doing something, it's going to be very difficult to control if you make it too hard for them. But if you get them doing that first step, the really simple things, it leaves the emergency responders free, the people who are trained up, free to really do the really hard stuff. But not only that, it engenders this other spirit of cooperation and taking responsibility for each other. And I suppose that's one of the things that I've always thought that we, we seem to have lost in recent decades, is that the sense of do we know our neighbours, do we know who's vulnerable, would we be able to help someone if something happened in our street? It's all those sorts of things at a very local level that we seem to have lost touch with. Now, I think the, going back to, to Steve's point as well about refuge and templates, I think what's interesting is to observe different models. So it doesn't mean we have to make the template and say this is how it should go. It means that refuge is unique. It's a very special project. It hasn't been done like this before in Australia. And let's have other people look at it because it will inspire them to think in different ways about what they're doing. It doesn't mean they have to reproduce the template. They might take part of it. They might be inspired by part of it, but it is a model and they can say, Look, I've seen that video. Look at the interesting things they're doing. Look at the game that Latai did. David's book. Look at what they've talked about here. It gives it legitimacy for other people to be able to say, you know, I thought of doing something like this years ago and no one listened to me. Because that's also what happens. People do have ideas. They do have creative approaches to, to managing emergencies or disasters. But all too often, it's not within the bureaucracy or, you know, the status quo, and they're not listened to. In fact, when I came back from Peru, just as an aside, I, I had worked with ambassadors and all sorts of different people, um, the, the generals who were head of the National Institute of Civil Defence in Peru, and they all wanted to set up an exchange with Australia where we would learn from each other. Apparently that's too difficult because you have to go through the sort of diplomatic core and there's a lot of red tape and different things with that, so it's too hard. Apparently it's too difficult because they speak Spanish, although a lot of people at the high levels are bilingual and speak English, and they have translators as well, and they do <laughs> international cooperation <laughs> constantly. But thirdly, and most telling, is they're a developing country. Mm. And we're, we're not. Oh, no, we're the advanced West. So how could they have any kind of things that we would learn from them when they're a developing country? So no matter how hard I tried to push it up and to go sort of all over the place, locally, state and national level, we couldn't achieve that, that exchange and that partnership which would have been wonderful, but there's plenty of other things that we can learn from in the world as well. But we do need to broaden our horizons. We need to look at refuge. We need to look at other models around the world. In order that, we can say, no, things are done differently elsewhere, and it is possible to do things differently. And I remember um, in one of the early years of refuge, there was a conference in Melbourne called the Diversity in Disaster Conference. 
And I do remember at the time saying, who do I want around me in a disaster? Well, um, as a SES responder, I certainly want the 87-year-old woman I went to one night whose, whose roof had collapsed and she had rigged up an umbrella to divert water. She had rigged up some other plastic and tied it all up to make sure it was diverted outside of her kitchen. She had moved everything out of the way and basically she, she'd done this sort of very strange kind of water diversion arrangement, which was fantastic. And we turned up there and, well, it's a building job. It's the, we, there's nothing more we could do. She had done what we would have done. <laughs> <laughs> so I want her. I want, I want artists with me in emergency because they're used to improvising, whether it be with words, with ideas or with material resources. People make stuff out of anything. And so I want those people around me who can improvise and who can adapt and be flexible and not only that can get up when they've been knocked down because, as everybody knows, in, in the performing arts world, it's very, very difficult to establish yourself as an artist and to maintain your identity as an artist because you're constantly being told, oh, it doesn't matter, mm -hmm. you know, we don't need it. It's uh, how economically productive is it? Well, yes, it is, but we don't ever seem to see that in the headlines. Um, and, oh, you're just a bunch of people with sort of strange ideas, so you know, it's a bit difficult to kind of um, understand really what's going on. But that's exactly what we need. We need the thinkers, the people who are adaptive, people who think outside the box, people who come up with a new solution, and they'll do it on the spot. They won't be spending the next six months with a kind of a review of the operating model and thinking about, <laughs> oh, you know, what... I'm tearing up for a different reason. <laughs> <laughs> so it'll sort of be over in a minute and it'll be, like, hey, we've got a solution here, let's have a look at this. So that's, that's what I think. Thank, I, yeah. Thanks, Faye. That's, that's actually a, a, an imperfect segue into Latai, <laughs> who is um, a an extraordinary artist uh, and I, I want to, I want to, I mean, when I think of your work, Latine, your agency, mm -hmm. think all about it as a sort of an agency, is as a leader, as a, a cultural leader and also a, a leader in Australian culture. Um, I, I also feel like you're a natural leader and there aren't many natural leaders um, around, really. I think it's a, uh, I've met a few, maybe two or three, and you're a natural leader, and that's a very important thing for us all in the room to acknowledge, um, because that does come with um, uh, um, certain responsibility. Uh, and I'm very curious about how, in, in, over the process of refuge, your work as an artist, uh, how has it changed? So I'd like to ask you that question, if it's changed. And then I'd also like to frame that in a broader question about stamina and endurance. And, and maybe it's because I'm thinking of, it first, of your first work for, for um, Refuge. But I, I also think in terms of your, um, your, your role um, and your, as a social and cultural agent. So perhaps we could just start with the first question, because I think that's... Uh, uh, and then scale up. 
Mm-hmm. So how has how has um, being involved in refuge uh, affected you, your practice as an artist? Um, well, thank you. I don't I don't see myself as a as a leader, but um, I think um, refuge has really enabled me in the same way that it's enabled many others. I think for me, climate change is how I started thinking about my practice more deeply, just questioning, you know, I love being creative and artistic, but what's it for? And so I I was constantly searching for something that's meaningful, Um, especially if you come from a a culture where the aspiration is to, you know, be a scientist. My family are medical people. Um, My grandfather was a eye surgeon so and community workers and so constantly finding the need to do something useful Mm. um so refuge you know having been you know having um felt the impact of climate change on my island um which is tonga and you know as a kid i had a t-shirt in primary school that said where on earth is tonga and you know, and it's interesting because it's it's always made me feel like oh that is some other place, although I was born here in Australia, and so it, it it's always given me a perception of other, but also having scholars, um, you know, Tongan scholars talk about our perception of ourself is not that of a tiny island, but that of belonging to a sea of islands. So the ocean itself is actually our home. It's where we're from and it's where our skills come from and it's an environment that we understand. We eat from there, we tr- we're transported from there, around there, you know, through the ocean. It's our, it's our life, it's our sustenance. And um, so, uh, you know, being a part of, of refuge and, you know, an incredible cohort of artists um, arts management, art thinkers, innovative people from across uh, emergency services really just made me think about... I mean, in the first year, each one of the artists were given an area to, th- to think about, which is great because artists sometimes need parameters <laughs> because having a vast ocean of possibilities, you know, and a depth of possibilities means that we might be there for a very long time exploring all the options. Mm. But having been given um, the first uh, a way into refuge, which was um, uh, light, uh, what was it? Light and warmth. And trying to find my way into mm. how I might fit inside this um, framework meant that I went into that tiny island and thought about what that means to me as a performance maker so just a straight translation of those two words light being mama and warmth being mafana Um, mama light the same word means enlightenment you know and mafana means warmth but also warmth from a performance perspective is is something that you want to produce as a performer Mm. for the audience Mm. as well as yourself. You're Mm. looking for transformation. You're Mm. looking for um, 
jubilation, you know. So these are things that, as a performance maker, be, uh, things that we all want to do, we have this exchange with other people. And so for Refuge, for me, it was enabling me to look at some very clear ideas of what I'd like to produce in myself and, and also an audience, and that that's reciprocal. I think the thing with performance is that um, we're constantly working with an exchange of, we're looking for a transformative mm. um, power. And so the idea of enlightenment and producing warmth and heat, which you know come from these ideas of climate change, are also ideas of power. And one of the things one of the biggest injustices in climate change is power. Mm. Also, ideas of community empowerment. You know, so this, you know, refuge really enabled me to go deeper into these ideas um, from this place that nobody's ever heard of. But it also made me think about what it means to come from one of the youngest civilizations inside the framework of one of the oldest civilizations. So these ideas of time, uh, you know, for many First Nations people, um, you know, determine a lot of things about space. Mm -hmm. And the cl climate change, environmentalism, people, uh, is all about space. And we have a word for space, which is va, and it's, it's open space, but it's full. So we're constantly negotiating ourselves within this space. In the theatre, in performance, we are talking, when we're talking about time, we're talking about when the show opens, when the season works, when we get to rehearse, when we get to, you know, so different ideas of time. So inside Refuge, it was enabling me more and more to riff off other ideas that all the other collaborators um, within the project were thinking about. We were having big conversations about how to, what do we do? What What is refuge? Like the very first year we were talking about this yesterday is what are we going to do? What What's it, how, how's it going to work? Who's it for? All these big questions. How do we communicate that? Do we know enough? You know, so the space became full of just ideas, like it was just going off. You know, and a lot of emotion. Mm. I, I think this is true. You know, Jodie was saying that earlier to us, you know, mm. the difference between the arts and sciences, we get to explore emotion. You know, so we've got a huge spectrum of, of emotion in the arts that, that we can, we're allowed to explore, we're allowed to experience. And so part of climate change and environmental work and emergency services um, that we have and experience as people in refuge um, is for me was about creating these exchanges and creating opportunities for people to become transformed so then they can um, create their own agency, um, be a part of communities developing agency, being empowered by that. So I think refuge changed me in, in the sense of feeling very much like a lone artist working in, in that field and meeting a whole family of people who felt equally as moved by it, as, um, you know, um, f fearful of it, and also just really, um, uh, what's the word, you know, um, adventurous mm. about 
exploring possibilities and and bringing them together and supporting each other through through that. So there's the stuff that we see here in in the building or or, or outside of refuge where where various artists have put things on, but there's also inside that where we constantly in contact or using all the various, you know, like this pandemic have been, Lorna and I have been texting, she's been texting everybody, you know. Um, and I think it's it's nice to have that connection, even though we don't live in the different city, we're of a different generation, you know. So I think Refuge changed me in a way where I could understand how, what the relationship is between cultures, mm. the relationships between um, various knowledges and knowledge systems. Um, and it's it's added to that, you know. And it's also, um, you know, I think the, the very early stages of, of um, making climate change work, for me, learning from Ang Harrod is ideas around working across silos, mm. you know, so... Mm. And that's, that's what refuge is. Mm. It's working across the various silos and, and not having this kind of verticality around mm. um, response, responsiveness um, or, you know, planning and, and being able to improvise mm. through these things. And also being able to fail and make mistakes mm. and recover. And, you know, so I think, um, yeah, those, those are some big changes um, as well as an evolution as well of, of continuous questioning and thinking and sharing and growing together. I'm very curious about actually um, the five or six years and um, how your respective languages, and I mean your, your artistic and emergency management, the languages that operate in those in your spaces that you work in, have those languages changed as a result of the interaction over the last five or six years? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think... Um, well, we're seeing... We're, we, we, we see some of the same things. Like, I remember, you know, in the first few years... Um, ..going along to SES with Faye and observing you know, what the SES do in Footscray and and talking and going along on the drills with, with mm. some of the team and, and we were talking about things and they were talking about, um, you know, their training and I was, you know, I was observing their training, which in performance, in dance, well that's, that was my first lot of training is contemporary dance, um, these ideas of training and creating automated... Um, responses, um, practicing, rehearsing—you know, these kind, this kind of language is something that created some conversation. You know, I remember being out on the on the field with some of the SES volunteers and asking them about habits, like how do you? Because there was one time when someone said, "Oh, that—that's not what always happens." That particular thing, and then you know, when I was asking questions around. How do you make sure that you don't learn, the, you don't continue to rehearse the bad habits then, mm -hmm. you know? So, became, because in performance, you're constantly rehearsing to get it the same, trying to get it the same every mm -hmm. time. But mm -hmm. actually, in emergencies, 
you have to adapt. You can't. It's not going to be the same, and it's not going to be the same for mm. um, each community. So that kind of language led to just teasing out different ways of thinking about yeah. some of these things. Um, yeah, but you know, for me, language is a way of you know, having studied studied dance and theatre. Um, you know, there are some things in that that I want to unlearn. I, they're not yeah, useful to yeah. me. You know, so some of it is looking, centering my own culture yeah. within that to find ways in and also to become a part of the form. And so for me in emergencies, like some of that is looking at the form of emergencies, mm. looking at the form of performance making and or, you know, um, yeah, many of the other artists are constantly teasing those ideas out. Mm. So it's always kind of open questions, which is what exactly what we're seeing in these increasing, um, you know, emergency responses mm. is that communities are constantly having to readjust, reshuffle, use what's available. Um, and that's something that we, yeah, mm. as, as Faye was saying, that's what we're, one of the things that we, we do quite well in the arts. Yeah, mm. yeah. I think another part of the, the language is a uh, kinesthetic experience as mm. well. So that it's not only words or terminology, but there's... Even like Jen, the the portage, the temporary sheltered building, mm. and having the emergency teams work in with First Nations peoples and their models, and building temporary, which of course in the emergency services we're very well resourced in Australia, so we're not going to be building a lean-to out the back if we've sort of had to evacuate our house, mm. perhaps. Mm -hmm. But I I wonder whether some people in Lismore, where some of them are today mm. right now, but um. So I suppose that thing of the, uh, the emergency team coming in to work and thinking, well, normally what happens is the council's going to organise a motel room for you. Um, that, that's going to be dealt with. So that's the process. That's kind of that, the structure. That's what we've got. But on the other hand, if we really were faced with a dire emergencies where we're, the unexpected happens, mm. how would we construct a shelter? Mm -hmm. So I think there's other things to do with... The, the physical experience of some of the activities that people participated in mm. that have made a huge difference as well to, for example, emergency workers. Mm -hmm. mm. Steve, what about, what about you? Because, I mean, you're such a great advocate for um, the whole project and in particular the, the kind of connection to creativity. Mm. Have, how's that kind of, you know, you know in... It has been inscribed in how you behave, you know, in 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 the emergency sec emergency management sector. Yeah, I think um, part of the conversation that you and I had, you know, in producing the the words, if you like, was when we started talking about structured improvisation, mm. and that was the artistic yeah. principle. Yeah. Mm. But that's what we're talking about, and and Faye's just described when the standard emergency process and plan just reached its limitations. We've got overlapping stresses, shocks and emergencies more than ever and mm. they may be disastrous. Yep. Depending on where they are, the context and who's affected. Yeah. So structured improvisation means what now? Mm. And what now and what then? So we have to move away from the council having the motel set up ready to go because the motel might be flooded like everything else mm -hmm. was the example. So we have to understand that that may not happen now. Mm -hmm. And the, the ability to work creatively, and we talked about it yesterday, was, was not only just thinking 
terms of fiction, but well-researched thought mm-hmm. with experts, and experts can be someone like Jodie that came and helped with all their colleagues, but community experts as well. Mm. Mm. It's bringing all the different perspectives and what if that sort of happens? What would we do? Mm. And be, having the ability to, to stretch beyond just that standard process, that standard operating procedure that the emergency service might grasp onto, to think, okay, we're, we're not just stopping there. We're going to go further mm-hmm. and think about what has happened around the world, how we can learn from a developing country that doesn't have all those resources, because in some ways we're heading closer to that, mm-hmm. particularly with climate change. Mm-hmm. So it's about time we put all those biases aside and started learning better from each other. Mm-hmm. It's so important, and Refuge gave us that safe space to have that conversation. And that's so important, and anybody who's worked with community, I'm sure many of you have, we all try to create that safe space to have a difficult conversation, because that's what we all need at some point. And once you get to that place, it feels like home. Coming back yesterday, I hadn't been mm. here for some years, and it felt like home. It's mm. a safe place to talk about all those difficult things that you may not be able to talk about somewhere else or with other people that you hadn't built that relationship with. And I think we've started to challenge what we measure now. And we spoke before about metrics and Mm. dollars, how this is going to be funded in the future. So some of the most recent work now that I've been putting forward and I guess testing is to understand what we do measure. So it is about relationships, it is about trust, it is about being adaptive, and it is about working together in different ways. So they may be the questions we need to ask instead of how many bums on seats, mm. emergency services, mm. how many plans. Faith mm. laughing. It's <laughs> true. We, how many plans did you produce? You know, yeah. one of the first things that I was asked to do in this work was go to work with a a number of small communities, mostly after emergencies, and see if you can help them in their recovery process and help them develop a plan for the future. And you'll be there three months, that'll be okay. Maybe one, two, three years later, we developed the relationships and started to work out who the community are now, what are they experiencing now, what their strengths are now, what they valued now, and is that the same as what they valued before, or is it different? Mm. And there were all those combinations of people and thoughts and other actors that had helped or not. And even the, the discussion within the community that may have been heated and ruined relationships just at that point in time when everybody was severely stressed. Mm. And people need time for that. Mm. And any time that the safe place and the conversation has worked that I've witnessed, the community have ended up having a conversation that we couldn't plan for. It's happened nearly every time. Now, I can't write that in a plan, the aim and the objectives and the outcomes. The community's going to have a really difficult conversation that we couldn't plan for. That's not going to work. But nearly every time there'll be something that needed to be said or some bloodletting or someone needed to resolve a problem or people needed to reconnect in a different way or apologise or whatever it might be. And at that point, we just slipped back into the back of the room. But it's so important that the community were able to do that. Mm. 
because it's theirs, not ours. Mm. It's not a project and it's not a response. Mm. Mm. It's just having the conversation and being able to work out how we're going to move forward in different ways. Mm. That's not a project. Mm. It's not a widget. It's a process. It's a process. Right. So we have to fit into that process somewhere. Mm. And I think the future now, and Refuge is a great example of this, and, and I was criticised that the types of things that I was putting forward, particularly, I don't know, 10 years ago or more now, were that'll work in these little small communities, you know, coastal things where I live or up in the bush or whatever. But Refuge gave us the opportunity to, to work together like this in the city. And I was told it will fail. Mm. You are wasting your time. Here we are. I'm not sure that's a failure, it's something different. So I think we've, we've got to just challenge ourselves and challenge each other, but now it's up to the community to, to work together in different ways and invite the agencies and organisations to participate in that process. Mm. But it's a community conversation and the agencies and organisations participate as needed. Mm. Mm. And then we're not building reliance. Mm. Mm. It's just an ongoing conversation where people move in and out as needed. Yeah. that's an important process and that has worked time and time and time again <laughs> so I think that's part of working differently Thanks Steve um, yeah, you've sort of reminded me I think one of the things that I've been thinking a lot about in terms of art uh, and the way it gets produced and how it's regarded in this very um, powerful ideology of neoliberalism which you know we operating every every period has its you know dominant ideology ours is neoliberalism yeah. art reduces um it, it prefers to reduce uh neoliberalism prefers to reduce art to either a tool or a product something to use or something to be sold but actually whereas where when it is at its most subversive in this frame is as a process. Mm. And actually that's very similar to what you're saying when you're operating in community. That's the thing, because you can't concretise it. You can't contain it. You can, it, can, it can only grow and be a thing in and of itself. Um, I've been given the wind-up. <laughs> Thank you so much <laughs> for attracting my attention over there. My I, I gaze is there. Um, I'd, I'd love to um, say thanks to... Uh, there's um, um, three brilliant people. I hear, I'd just like to conclude, I hear, I hear a language, you know, that's come out of this um, project. You know, I hear, I, I hear, not so much in the words, it's in a sensibility. Uh, and I think my experience of, um, you know, talking to people, being a witness to the project, is that I've heard a certain kind of tone and a frequency in the way that people talk about and talk to the project. And that is something that can never be measured, that it can only be experienced. So I had a great pleasure experiencing that and also I learned a lot through that process. So thank you very much. Thank you. All thank of you. you. And thank you everyone for coming. Cheers. Thank you, David. Um, to close us out, I'd like to welcome Lorna Hannon, local icon, um, to 
to the stage. Um, and she's going to... I have no idea what you're going to do, Lorna, actually. That's the <laughs> great delight of knowing you. <laughs> Please. Actually, no matter what I came to do, I'm not doing that. <laughs> because yesterday I began to feel how important it was to know how I was going to move forward with so many ideas buzzing around me, the room full of love and understanding and challenge. And so I've spent the last 24 hours trying to work out how I worked my own way through this. And so I want you to help me. I'm taking a simple view. What's in front of me? What's behind me? What's on the right of me? What's on the left of me? What's on the right of me? I've lived in North Melbourne for 60-something years. During that time, the community has altered, regrouped, been vilified, been loved. And out of it have co has come a, a great richness. But it's not a community that fits the idea that people would have of a community that can deal with the disaster. It's a community of fragmented pieces and wonderful people. Now, it's a community that is really vulnerable. That's what's behind me, the, its vulnerability. You know about it. You know about the people who were um, <clears throat> locked in the, in the towers because of the virus. You know, you know about that. Everybody does. We know, we know, know that that's not the only way in which people in our community are marginalised and troubled and excluded. We know too that good people find themselves in the awkward situation of not knowing what to decide to do. You don't approve of the overuse of plastic but you're buying a litre of milk and the milk is in a plastic container. You can't get the milk any other way. So your whole idea of how to live is, is compromised. You're vulnerable because you can't make the choice that you want to make. So I see in my daily life people tortured by this inability to make a choice that they feel is a valid one. And that's not something that they can really cope with by themselves. And it's not one that... It's not one that is without its answers, but none of the answers are big enough and good enough for the situation that we're in, which is climate change and horror instead of daily life and fun. To the left, to the right of me, to the right of me, lies the need for empathy. And this is where we all come in. We, we know, we know how to be empathetic. 
We know how to create work that teaches people about empathy. We know what empathy is, but do we know how to nurture it through the whole community? Are we trying to do that? The main way in which we could move forward on empathy is by making a moral choice about hope. Hope is on my side. Hope is the strength that we all have, that we can all use together. Hope is the only thing that we have to arm us against an unknown future. So I stand in front of you today. Really, I'm among you. We all face these things together. We all face an unfortunate and unhelpful view of the future, but we can change that view by being the best we can be, by facing up to the facts around us and by remembering Ruth Crow. Ruth Crow, who stood in this room and talked to the people of the 1960s about how if we talk things through, great things will happen. So Ruth Crow was one of the spirits behind Refuge. Refuge has treated conversation as a serious pursuit, not just an intellectual pursuit, but a serious artistic pursuit, the art of conversation, real conversation. Ruth Crow left that as a legacy for us and we have used it. And let's go on using it because it is our way towards hope, building hope. It is our way towards empathy, conveying, communicating, growing empathy. And it is our way ultimately of controlling the way in which we are vulnerable. But let me say one last thing about vulnerability. It's a blessing because it opens us to new possibilities and new answers. And that's what we need to face daily. Well, we do. You do. <laughs> and I love you all for it. Thank you, Lorna. Thank you, everybody who spoke today. It was incredibly um, generous and warm to be with your presence. Um, thank you, Sarah, who's done a beautiful job pulling together this event. <laughs> and Refuge. Um, thank you, Ang Harrod and Catherine, who are the um, inspiration and custodians of this project at the beginning. Um, and I think we're recording this, so um, do feel free to um, share it around um, with people um, in your community who you know might feel inspired and motivated by what um, everyone has shared today. Um, yeah, thank you very much and we'll see you soon. <laughs>